Welcome to the Emerging Minds podcast. Today we will be speaking with Professor Julie Coffin, a prominent Aboriginal researcher with research expertise in cultural security, education and research across a diverse range of disciplines, including chronic diseases, nutrition, contextualising bullying and health promotion. In 2021, Professor Coffin was a WA Mental Health Award winner for Best Practice and to Outstanding Contributions to Mental Health in WA. Her work with the Yoandani Junga Project is an innovative project which aims to include the development of culturally secure methods to uniformly assess social, emotional and spiritual well-being outcomes among Aboriginal young people in the Kimberley through the delivery of an equine-assisted learning intervention on country. Today we will be hearing from Julie Coffin. Julie, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Before we get into the detail of your work, could you tell me a little bit about yourself to begin with? Not sure what would be interesting to know, but I'm in Yarra country. I've lived here for six, going on seven years now. And my association with the Kimberley and Broome was coming up here when I was a little girl and there was one shopping centre and it wasn't really a tourist town. And one of my nanas used to come up and visit the old people in the native um, hospital. It used to be a separate hospital for Aboriginal people. And I was pretty small. When that happened, yeah, I reckon I would have been like, yeah, I don't know, five, six maybe. And, yeah, then I, I used to visit this area a little bit from Headland, spent most of my life in Headland and had my first job as a teacher and I spent <laughs> quite a few weekends coming up to the Kimberley and, you know, used to drive up and down the road. But, yeah, I'd never lived here before, so this was a really nice move for me. I've been living in the Pilbara and the Midwest before, which I really enjoyed. And yeah, something brought me back up this way, I think. I'm not sure what it was initially. And then had a job up here for a few years with Notre Dame running the uni. But I really wanted to get back into the work that I'd started in Geraldton, which was around really trying to cater or do something a bit different around the social emotional well-being of our young Aboriginal people. I just felt like, you know, over the years, I'd probably sat around the table at countless meetings particularly around suicide or kind of youth crime or youth incarceration or you know you name it it's like you know why aren't young people attending school and why aren't Aboriginal people achieving and that was actually the topic of my PhD and what came out of that was this massive disconnect for young people around relationships with themselves and their families and their wider community and that school wasn't necessarily the problem. School was often a safe haven for some young people but as soon as things went a bit pear-shaped sort of relationship-wise then young people would, for example, disengage with school and then that cycle of truancy starts, then they get behind and you know, I just thought, wow, I'd really like to catch young people before they get to that point. What we're doing is not working, you know, and then don't get me wrong, there's people doing amazing work, but it's just not quite hitting the mark. And that's when I first became really interested in what I'd been offered through my life, which was being around the horses. And I just thought, well, you always get told, you know, when you find your gift, you've got to give it away. So I feel like my gift that I got given was, you know, growing up around horses and what they did and how they supported me and the different challenges I had, like everybody has had in their life, you know, things that I got through and how the horses were always the constant for me. And so, yeah, I guess that's sort of what I wanted to give to young people, something 
where I could combine the horses and sort of some healing or supporting young people as they move through these different times in their lives. That sounds like an amazing set of opportunities and experiences for you, Julie. And what a wonderful and amazing gift to be able to give others. What I was noticing from the work I did in Geraldton, did a one-year trial there, I was noticing that the people that were coming in, the young people, they were kind of getting younger and younger. So, you know, you're getting sort of six-year-olds with um, signs of post-traumatic stress disorder. You would probably expect to see the same level in maybe a 30, 40-year-old. And I guess it then alludes to why young people just disengage in life. And I, I was saying to somebody once, look, you know, all these programs that we offer young people, they're great, right? There's some amazing opportunities for young people. But I feel like young people don't stick at them because while that program's on offer, nothing's changed for them inside themselves. Nothing's changed for them in their environment. Nothing's changed for the way that they respond to these stresses and things that are come across them in their life. And I said, we really need to address that. That's the key to keeping young people alive. And it's, we have to catch young people before they disengage in life. So, you know, it's like the old adage, which is you could have the best mass program in the world, but if the kid can't hear, <laughs> they're not going to be able to take advantage of it. We could have all these great programs, but if a young person isn't engaged in themselves and isn't in tune and in a space where they can engage, they're not going to, or they're not going to get as much out of it. That's the part that I really wanted to nurture and look after with our young people. And when I say young, the program is 6 to 26, which is hopefully also tailoring towards some of that intergenerational change, you know, like we're dealing with young parents and some people by 26 may have, you know, three or four children but may not have ever addressed some of the issues in themselves and, of course, they're going to pass some of those maybe not so good things on to their little people in their life. So, you know, I really like that we could offer that such a wide catchment. I just thought I wish there was some kind of opportunity to do things differently, not just maybe be sent to a, you know, a doctor and given tablets, you know, to make you sit still or calm you down if there's actually something that's causing that. And the reason I really love this work is because of the different parts that it can connect with with young people. And what we see every day when young people come out is a transformation. It's just a shift. I feel very blessed to be in the space. And I think just able to offer that gift. And if that's all I ever did, I'd be pretty happy <laughs> with my life. So yeah, I think it's I think it's really important. And I really like the fact that we can do it in a really culturally secure way. So all of our practitioners are Aboriginal. So I was very adamant that we have Aboriginal people working with Aboriginal people in that, especially in that space, in that very intimate social emotional wellbeing space. We have people on our staff that, you know, they're role models in their own communities and it's giving them skills to pass on some of the amazing attributes that they have that they may not necessarily in other types of work get to do. And so that's, it's really nice for that different style of workforce development as well. So I feel like the community being behind the approach and the program obviously is of the utmost importance to me and having that support has meant that we can grow the service and grow what we offer and we can maintain it as a culturally secure service because we get the input and the guidance, you know, when we need it. And I don't have a fear that it'll get swept up into a 
westernized model, you know, because there's people not just like me, but there's many people who are very staunch in what we're doing and we, we will um, stick to the script, if that makes sense. And that's hard sometimes, you know, when you look at funding and so on. So I think we have enough strength and conviction in what we're doing and now we have enough evidence, you know, coming out. So I wondered, could you tell me about Equine Assisted Learning and a bit more about the program? What does it actually look like in practice? Yeah. So Equine Assisted Learning is really where the relationship between the what we call a practitioner trained in Equine Assisted Learning or Equine Assisted Psychotherapy runs a session and the horse is the star. So they actually do all the work and they are in the space with a young person. And it really depends. It's really hard to describe what a session looks like, but the basic structure of our sessions are that young person is either picked up with our transport service or they are dropped off out at the block and it's just about 4Ks out of town, so it's not too far. They'll come in to the block and meet up with their person first, their practitioner, and, you know, we try to match up gender with gender. So obviously try to have, you know, young men with, with our young male practitioners or men. And we also have some requests that people do want a specific gender or don't. So uh, we just try to match up the practitioner. So once that's sorted out, the practitioner will look at the case notes and the referral and just see what this young person's been dealing with because we deal in the trauma and healing space but we also do leadership activities so really important to offer both and keep people guessing you know why someone's coming out so we sort of match up you know whatever's on offer and we we basically work through a series of about seven themes and the first of the themes is just around awareness you know awareness of self and others Um, then we move into other components like regulation and boundaries and feelings as natural and facing life's challenges and positive self-thought and and so on. And we quite often like to build young people up from coming in as individuals for as long as they need into a paired session and then eventually a small group session. So what we're hoping is that while they're with us and the horses that they get to practice those relationship skills and they get to have horses there supporting them and the practitioner and other young people that are kind of like-minded have been through a similar probably series, you know, but may have affected them all very differently, of course, but just that there's some understandings of things like, for example, boundaries and so on. So, yeah, a, a typical sort of first session would be in every session we do a grounding. So it takes about usually just five to ten minutes and that's like a bit of a self-meditation where young people are just asked to close their eyes and depending on what they present with just tuning into different things opening up the senses and just shaking off the morning and the previous day and what they did on the weekend and last night and it just gets them to tune into what they're doing and why they're there and it really grounds them so it connects them with the earth and just the environment and that yeah look it can take five to ten minutes probably at, at longest Um, And then they'll move into what we call a series of experiments or opportunities with the horse, and that will be whatever the practitioner sets up. It's a rough example because it's really hard, you know, because it's client-centred and we we move and change all the time with what they need. But let's say the theme was awareness. We might ask the young person to do a herd meet. So they might typically 
go into the larger paddock after they've done this grounding and we give them lots of say a bit of a safety briefing as well of course because you know you've got 600 kilos there that moves at speed and a lot of young people have not been around horses so if they were comfortable they'd go into the herd and we would offer them something like you know you can go in and want you to go in there and be exactly what you want to be and interact how you want to here's a bit of horse wisdom you know horses are herd animals they often are in a hierarchy and a relationship and you're going into their space so just be very aware you know so we'll give we'll give some lots of sort of guidance we hold space for that young person if they want us to come in we can go in sometimes little people we might even hold their hand and walk in or they might even sit on their lap you know under the tree and so it really depends on that young person but a probably a more typical session the young person is usually pretty comfortable going in so when they come out we'll say to them something like just gonna ask you to go in there for a few minutes and when I think the time's up I'm gonna ask you to come out and when you come out, yeah, you know, we'll have a little chat about it. So what it's based on is all observations. So, for example, if you went in with the horse and you've come out, you know, I might say to you something like, oh, I noticed the horse moved over towards you. Can you tell me about that? Um, how was that for you? So all the question line is non-judgmental. It's all open-ended and it's all about being client-centred. So it's whatever they experience. There's no right or wrong. And Depending on what's come out of that first little bit, they most likely will be sent back in with the horses with maybe a task. So, for example, if they said, oh, look, when that really big horse come up to me and noticed me, I felt a bit scared, you know. Um, So you might say, well, how do you know you're scared? What does that feel like? Oh, like I was, my body was tight or, you know. So when they go back in, we might offer to say, look, I want you, when the horse comes, I want you to take three really big breaths. I want you to think about your body not being tight and see what happens. And look, it's because it's based on phenomenology, right? We don't know what the horse is going to do. They're not trained in any way. We don't know which horse is going to pick up on which young person's vibration, what the interaction's ever going to be. So we feed off every observation, I guess, but just to ensure that the practitioners are all trained in a way that it's all non-judgmental. So we never say things like, I think that horse really likes you, (laughs) you know. We only talk about what we see. Did you notice the horse's ears? Oh, I noticed you moved away. I noticed you were really smiling. Tell me about that, you know. And sometimes young people don't want to even open up and talk about some of those things. So what's really nice about having the horse is it's kind of like the elephant in the room, you know. You can really detract from that young person and if they're not, really engaging initially and look you know some people don't some young people really don't want to talk for a little while until they feel comfortable and that might be three sessions you know and you just you just ride that and the nice thing is you can talk lots about the horse so they if they're very in their own head and you know um, for example if they've had very negative thoughts even as serious as um, suicidal thoughts or you know, the whole world is terrible and really not in a good place. It's a really nice thing to deflect everything onto the horse. So you can imagine like being in a room with a young person, where would you deflect stuff? There's not the opportunity to do that. So it's a very different type of way of working with young people. And often, you know, a session will take maybe around 40, 45 minutes of kind of contact time with the horse. Um, And that young person might have been sent in and out of the space with the horse's three or four times. We always do a closure. 
So we always ask sort of the question around, what do you think the horses were trying to show you today? Or what did you pick up from today? Um, And that's the things that we record in our case notes are lots of photos, lots of video. We don't get young people to fill in boxes or tick forms because I just refuse (laughs) to do that. I find no value in that. Um, Young people can work the system better than anybody. You know, they've had lots of practice usually. And often the information you're getting on those forms is really not valid. Like I really like the photo and the video and the observational notes because that's really authentic. Um, And I feel like we're getting into that side of it. And, you know, you could correlate that down the track with some sort of a paper-based format. But for us, our biggest learnings are from the young person's feedback and what they do, even probably more than what they say, which is really nice. Because, you know, people can say, oh, I feel great. But when they go in with the horse, you can see a whole different picture, you know, and then you can tune into that and talk about it. Whereas if someone says, oh, look, I feel great, and you turn around and go, well, no, you don't. (laughs) I can see that you don't feel great. You know, that's really confronting for young people. So I find that, you know, the sessions are very, they're very gentle. They're very non-invasive. They're very self-paced. And the young person will get out of it what they're ready to get out of it. And the horse knows the right amount of medicine to give. That's why they're just so amazing to be around. And after the session's finished, the young person will do their bit of closure, normally say goodbye to the horses or the horse, and off they go uh, back to school. And then we do some follow-up with young people uh, and their if they're in a school environment or if they've gone back home or we sort of do some check-ins at about the five-session mark and the ten-session mark to see how they're going. And really when a young person comes out, they can do all number of things. Like it's up to the creativity of the practitioner and the young person, what they're up for. Um, So we do painting with the horses, you know, we do obstacle courses, we do kind of some horsemanship activity, you know, when young people are making requests of the horses where they're learning how to do some of those other skills as well, like haltering and leading and Um, really joining up with the horse and forming a bond. Um, As I mentioned, we might be doing something in a pair, in a group of four. So, you know, the horses are just this amazing, adaptable, well, for me, they're my colleagues that never complain. (laughs) But sometimes they do need a rest as well from the work because they absorb a lot of energy. So it's about being really aware of their body language and when they've had enough for, for example, now, you know, we've had no kids out at the block, no young people, and the horses have been on on a really nice spell. So when you go out there, you've got like five or six horses just on you, you know, because they're really craving that interaction because they they seriously really love it. Like when you go out there and a young person goes to get a horse out of a herd environment, you know, if the horse moves away, well, the horse doesn't want to be involved. But that's actually very rare that the horse will ever move away. Most horses are like, oh, yeah, I'm keen, you know, and and sometimes the same horse shows up three or four times in a row and you think, oh, they're just in that space where they want to be there. So it's really interesting about the um, the horse's dynamics as much as the young people. I find it pretty fascinating. Thanks, Julie. How long does the program work with kids? Normally we do sort of a series of about 10 sessions and then we see where young people are at. We get a lot of re-referrals. So young people having, say, 10 sessions and then 
not quite being at a space where they need to be or not being able to maintain that dose rate or whatever you want to call it that they've been they've been exposed to so for some young people who've had lots and lots going on you know they might need 20 sessions to get to that really good space and we so we get re-referrals probably from that kind of top end of young people and the very interesting thing that we're looking into in the research context of this work is how many sessions do young people young aboriginal people need when they're coming in for what type of pre-existing referral, right? So let's just say someone comes in and they've had a very close sibling suicide, they've been in a lot of um, care through their life and they may have been exposed to quite a bit of trauma. You know, 10 sessions might be just scratching the surface for them. They might be just starting to get the supports that they were possibly not getting or, or needed in a different way, you know, which is through the horses and through, their, through themselves, you know, resourcing themselves. They might not have had any opportunity to do that before. So 20, 30, who knows, you know, and that's part of what we're really looking at with our young people around what is the dose rate because in a mainstream context the research tells us that 10 sessions you should be then able to maintain lifelong sustainable change. And we know that with some of our young people that's very true but with that very high-end trauma-based referral sort of section of young people, we're probably seeing at least double that, maybe even more. So that's part of the science behind uh, what we're doing as well, which is really important in the space for other people working in equine-assisted learning, particularly when they have very complex trauma clients. And whether they're dealing with Aboriginal young people or not, there'll be a lot of learnings in there around the very high-end young people. And unfortunately, as we know, the burden of trauma and uh, relationship breakdown and so on is very high with our young people. And ongoing as well. Exactly. It's it's something that once young people are in that cycle and, you know, we Look, my hopes would be that one day we can really do something about the flow of young people into incarceration in such a young age. You know, like, wouldn't it be great if we had a facility that could offer a one a last chance before they go to the Banksias and the Dondales? Where is that safety net for young people who have never had the opportunity to get those types of supports? It's not a magic bullet, but it is a really important uh, support mechanism in ensuring that all those other things are successful and that, you know, young people feel good about themselves. I mean, how important is it to change and affect the way someone feels about himself? You know, I think people have got to ask themselves in their work and their jobs, is that really important in what I'm doing? And if it's not, maybe that's why you're not getting good results, <laughs> you know, or you're not affecting change because, unless we're all on the same page about that and the importance of that, all that will happen is this kind of superficial stuff like, oh, yeah, we got 20 kids turned up, you know, for three weeks in a row and we did this and that. How do we know what effect we've had on young people? We don't, you know, we can't measure it. So it's really important that we have measurement. So what would be your key learnings that you think are most translatable for other practitioners? As we know, not every practitioner can go and work with horses they might be in a city or they might not have access to these kinds of facilities. But what are the principles that they'd be able to take and use in their interactions with young people that you've learnt? 
what's really important for practitioners to understand? I guess what some of the principles are, I guess, back to the way that we do business, which is having Aboriginal people with Aboriginal people, always trying to maintain things in a culturally secure way. So creating a space that's non-confronting is really important and non-judgmental. Uh, I think that that's that allows young people to be themselves and express themselves when there's no judgment. And unfortunately, all of us come with judgment as human beings. So it's something you really have to fight. When you're sort of working in this space, it's very normal as human beings to make a judgment. So it's some of those principles that you have to unlearn some of those ways that you might have been used to and been doing without knowing. So I guess it's some of that unconscious bias stuff and some of that that we are we're very aware of. But really for us, having Aboriginal people lead and run the work itself on the ground creates that by itself, you know, it creates that opportunity by itself. So really privileging Aboriginal people to lead the way of solution-based work as well is I think what's integral, well, for me as Aboriginal person, but is integral for us having any success. And, you know, that's not always easy. It can be very complex and it can be hard to particularly in some areas, to attract the right people and sustain the right staff. But I think that's always what you aim for if you can. And if you can't, then, and you're in a practice or a situation where that's not an option, you know, even having another Aboriginal person in the room, if that's the type of session you're offering or, or with you, can make a world of difference for that young person if, if you happen to not be an Aboriginal person. I think the other principles that we really stick to is that it is very child or client focused and it is at their pace. So we don't have any set objectives of what we want to get to. We have themes that we work through and some young people, if they don't get past the second theme, which is kind of around regulation, well, then they can just sit there for as long as they want. It doesn't matter to us. So we're not bound by some of the constraints that I guess very traditional-based programs are often bound by. You know, they'll be saying, well, by week two we've got to be doing this and week three. And so the difference for us is we, we're session-based for a start. So it's how many occasions of service or sessions, you know, how many times I get to interact with you is what I count. One of the other principles that we we have to adhere to is being super flexible. You know, we have young people who are coming out and involved in the program who are waiting sentencing, for example, you know, and we want to give them some support. They come out from the bail house or whatever and, you know, we might have to change their session five times, but we don't give up on them. The other thing we do is we stick with that young person so we create continuity and I don't want to be a creator of more stress or trauma for young people. So if I'm going to offer something, you know, I've got to make sure that I can pretty well offer it every week. And if that young person doesn't come because they, I don't know, maybe they don't want to or something's been going on or they're out of town for other reasons, you know, we give young people three or four goes at not, not showing up because Look, life can be very complex for our young people. And when you're a minor, so, you know, when you're under 18, under 16, 
you don't have a lot of control over your life. So, you know, if you haven't slept for two nights because of things going on at home or if you've had to just travel for, you know, two funerals and missed a week of school, well, you can't hold that against young people. So that flexibility of the way we offer that service, I think, has to be built in when you're catering for young people, some of those things. Well, in our communities anyway. Visit our website at www.emergingminds.com.au to access a range of resources to assist your practice. Brought to you by the National Workforce Centre for Child Mental Health, led by Emerging Minds, the National Workforce Centre for Child Mental Health is funded by the Australian Government Department of Health under the National Support for Child and Youth Mental Health Programme.